Welcome to the Hope on the Hard Road podcast, where you and your family can find community, find encouragement, and find hope for the road ahead. Speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so that you will all be together in this. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 We're beginning our family planning series today with an episode about special needs trusts. We're so grateful to have attorney Elizabeth McCoy with us to help explain this valuable resource to our listeners. Let's get started. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be able to talk to your parents. Yeah, you bet. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into the special needs community, you know, as we start introducing uh, special needs trusts? Well, I, um, I've been a licensed attorney since 1997. Uh, I started out in construction law because I'm actually a licensed landscape architect. So I, I did that for about a year and a half. And I, I was looking for a different job uh, closer to home. And so I worked with another attorney who uh, I heard about an attorney who was looking for someone and to work with. And he needed um, an attorney who could do special needs trust. So I thought, well, that sounds like what my mom does, because my mom spent the last third of her life uh, raising money uh, to help support a school for children with special needs. So I thought I would just do that temporarily for a couple months before I, I took another construction law job. But I ended up uh, just really loving it, loving the parents, um, really like the community and um, and really impressive people. I just uh, can't can't say that enough that that the clients that I have are just some of the best people I meet in my life. So I never left and I've been doing this now for 20 years. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, today we're talking about special needs trust. So what is a special needs trust and why would someone need this? So as soon as you have a diagnosis of um, a child who has a disability under the law, then you would need to have a special needs trust. So it's not age dependent, it's diagnosis dependent. And then the special needs trust protects the money so that it's never, whatever money's in that special needs trust is never counted as the child's assets. And it protects them from, um, you know, predators that would have them sign something away. It also protects them. um, And if the parents or other administrators don't make a mistake, it makes sure that they always qualify for means-tested public benefits. And the driver used to be in the past, when I started this 20 years ago, definitely everybody set up a special needs trust to uh, qualify for means-tested public benefits. But now it's it's really more the predator issue that, they, that there's so many ways that we all have to protect ourselves and you have a person who can't protect themselves. So you definitely don't want to work for years and years and years to put together gather assets so that the child has money after you're gone and then have someone steal it. So, so the special needs trust does do that. And, um, they, uh, special needs trusts are, are really uh, kind of in their infancy still, so that um, they've only been recognized by federal law in less time than I've been married, actually. <laughs> so they've been me- recognized by federal law since 1991. And a lot of grandparents haven't heard about them. They don't know why someone would need them. And and that's also an ish- another reason that you need to have it, because uh, grandparents and other persons in the family might be uh, leaving something through their trust or will and or will uh, 
to your child with special needs. And you want to make sure that that money does not have to go into a first party special needs trust or be spent down immediately or, or make disqualify them from all the benefits they're currently receiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned the grandparent factor and we'll definitely be talking more about that later. And also just the, the fact of, you know, you mentioned spending down or having it conflict with other resources, um, government resources in particular. So like, for instance, how would that affect, um, how would that help you with the income coming in from like SSI and things like that? Well, that's a good question because a lot of, a lot of, People who have a special needs trust already or who want to set one up think that there's a big conflict with SSI. And and, and I have a 19-page memorandum at the beginning of my special needs trust binder that I prepare for my clients that explains this topic on the starts on the first page because it's a big misunderstanding for parents but but if your child once your child is 18 years old two things happen uh, one minute after midnight you lose all legal rights over them uh, they they can go get married you, uh, you can't enter into a contract for them you um, you can't make medical decisions for them or or um, housing decisions or or they can join the military and vote and all those other things but um, we'll cover more about that in a in the conservatorship podcast, but but also um, if your child doesn't have any assets in their own name or $2,000 or less in countable resources anyway, uh, they will qualify for a supplemental security income, which is called SSI. And, and that means that you know, they're 18 now, parents aren't legally obligated to uh, provide care for them. So the government pays who is ever caring for the child that um, the amount every month um, in the supplemental income. And that uh, typically is if they're living in the house between six and $700. So it's not a whole lot of money, but it is a gateway to Medi-Cal. So that's one reason that people apply for SSI because it's automatic qualification for Medi-Cal if they're not already on Medi-Cal. Um, but, but so whatever age your child is, you really need to be aware of that to $2,000 in accountable resources. And it's not, it's more than just cash. So I, I would look up that limit and all those things that are counted and excluded from being counted uh, more than I can cover in the 35 minute, 40 minute podcast, but, uh, but be aware of that. And most, most parents who are involved with autism nonprofits are aware of that $2,000 limit, but, um, but back to the SSI payments. Um, so people think, do I need conservatorship to, to, uh, to be able to apply for SSI for my child? The answer is no. You do not have to have conservatorship to apply for SSI. The uh, SSI is not, I mean, a conservatorship is not required for every person. So, so SSI is a separate thing. Um, one person applies as the representative payee and then um, that person has, um, once they're approved by the Social Security Administration, receives the money into a bank account that the representative payee sets up. And then say it's $690 that you receive a month. Uh, well, representative payee bank accounts have lower balance, uh, required balances. So because there's not that ever that much money in there. So if you receive $690 in an SSI payment, in one month, you have to turn around the representative payee and pay yourself for or whoever is providing food and shelter. If the person's in a group home, it goes to the group home. If they're still living with uh, parents, it goes to the parent that they're living or parents or parents that they're living with. So, and you have to consume all that money 
every month except you know the minimum balance that you have in the bank account to keep the account open and you cannot turn around and put that into a third party special needs trust um, because that money that ssi money is considered the child's money even though it's the government paying the parents to care for the child so that's a, a big mistake a lot of people will make they'll turn around and put the ssi payment into a third party special needs trust and you know we all know what we know i i'm not a mechanic i can't fix my car <laughs> but i do know this and i know that some very brilliant clients of mine you know c-level executives will put that money into the third party special needs trust sometimes. So I, so I uh, make that really uh, clear in all the information that I give the parents. Um, but um, uh, we can talk a little bit more about the different types of special needs stress as we get through this podcast. Yeah, that's great. And a lot of uh, key information, you know, you definitely want to make sure where the money's going and, and follow all the rules, you know, in order to have the most benefit for your child. Uh, can you tell us about the uh, process for actually creating a special needs trust? Special needs trusts, um, like I said, it, it's it's still in it. They're still in their infancy, and and one of the reasons why there aren't a lot of attorneys who who really un understand how to draft these is that uh, um, they're they've only been around you know for thirty one years, but they also um, that there's a lot of different information that the person has to understand. Um, in order to draft them. And so um, we do have a CEB guide that CEB means California Education of the Bar. And, and we do get a two binder update. It's not all the binders are up, to, all the pages are updated, of course, but, but um, we get an update I, I buy it in once a year, you know, and it um, and it sets forth any changes relative to special needs trusts and things like that. But there are Social Security Administration rules and regulations. Those are called POMs, um, and they they apply. Uh, state law applies. Federal law applies. And so it's it's a it's it's a lot of information. There is something that I'd like to state just briefly, but um, you can't. So a lame person could not create a special needs trust on their own. Uh, that's for sure. You would have to have an attorney who a licensed attorney in your state who was knowledgeable about special needs trusts. Um, and so I, I used to give my clients always a litmus test, you know, because um, one thing that is happening that I'm seeing a lot more is that um, attorneys are using uh, the software to draft the special needs trust um, that is um, drafted in, um, in Sacramento and, and we all buy. So that there's a couple different software versions that people can use in California who are licensed attorneys and only licensed attorneys can buy them. And my um, experience with these softwares is that um, I can click a button and I can, and the, the prompt is, do you need to create a special needs trust for one or more of the parent's children? And so I could click that and it would create a 13 page special needs trust um, or it can also in, uh, create a testamentary special needs trust, which is about three pages inside a living trust or will. Both of those special needs trusts are um, in my all of my experience working in this um, area of the law for 20 years are inadequate. They will in my opinion, all end up in probate court. And so um, the parents' efforts and costs to establish this special needs trust for their child will basically be all negated. And the child will end up 
with a first party special needs trust in probate court. So, um, you know, the parents typically set up a living trust to avoid the costs and the time um, and, the, you know, the, you know, household of going someone going through probate court to probate their estate, which can take one to three years, costs a couple hundred grand sometimes. Um, and so um, they if if you don't set up a living trust during your lifetimes and your child with special needs inherits from you, it will go into a first party special needs trust and probate court. And then that will exist for the rest of your child's life or until all of the assets have been depleted. But um, but back to that software, that's what will result if that software is what people use. So I would be very careful as far as um, a parent looking for someone who, uh, an attorney who knows what they're doing. And so my litmus test still stands, I guess. I asked my parents or, you know, parents that I meet, uh, ask them how long their special needs trusts are. And I don't know if they've been, been cued into my question or not, but but if they say 13 pages or, oh, it's inside your living trust, you don't have to worry about it. It's just a couple pages inside that. Those are all, they're all going to go to court. You might as well just throw your money away. And a first party special needs trust and probate court is very restrictive. So uh, if you're getting $690 for food and shelter, um, that's, um, and, and the child is, you know, dependent on SSI and Medi-Cal, then um, either way, the first party special needs trust cannot pay for food and shelter. So can you imagine? I mean, that's the biggest expense we have, food right. and shelter. So they can pay for, um, you know, supplemental things like passes to SeaWorld and lotions and, and therapies and things like that that the child may need, but they can't pay for food and shelter. So so in my experience, I you know, know people who are living in Section 8 housing with a million dollars in their special needs trust. And then accountings are due every other year to the court to uh, account for every single penny spent in the um, in the special needs trust and where it's all invested or whatever. But but those accountings can run, you know, five thousand dollars every other year. So sometimes the attorneys are making more than the child is receiving and, in, in, you know, and distributions. So uh, and the child doesn't receive it directly. The, the trustee is just paying directly for everything like a parent would of a minor child. But um, back to the original question, you can't create it by yourself and you need to and you need to hire an attorney who really knows what they're doing. And the litmus test does seem to work. And attorneys can be very convincing. Um, that's their job. They need to pay their rent. They need to make payroll. Um, so I wouldn't even get in the door because I know people that did do that and went to talk to them and ended up leaving a substantial deposit or something and and then realizing this isn't somebody that even knows how to do this. Yeah. And, and I think another thing that contributes to it is that a lot of the people that um, that do know how to do it are not out, you know, necessarily training other attorneys because we would just create our own competition. So you know, there are people, I'm still just know a handful of people and they're literally the same people minus the people that have retired, uh, that I knew 20 years ago. Oh goodness. So that litmus test again, is if your lawyer is telling you that it's just a, a you know, one or two page, uh, trust within your living trust, or if it's only like a 13 page document, either one of those you believe is going to go to probate. And so instead they should have, if you could bullet point it for us, which of the two types of trusts, again, would they need to be looking for as a family? 
Okay. So the best vehicle for every family is a third party special needs trust. If it's an inheritance, um, your child um, could still need so the main two types are first party and third party. First party means it's your child's money. So if that living trust is not correctly drafted, you, the attorney that does your special needs trust also has to do your living trust because that's where most of the errors are. It's in the distribution and other things that have to be in the living trust to overcome Social Security Administration arguments and um, and and not be deemed a first party special needs trust. So, but if it's the child's money, it has to go into a first party special needs trust. So if you're anybody can be in a car accident, any of us could have a hundred thousand dollar litigation award that has to go into a first party special needs trust. Uh, there, the things that are uh, detriments to a first party special needs trust. Well, let me just talk about the benefit. So if your child received had a horrible car accident or maybe had a medical malpractice suit or something like that, and they ended up needing a first party special needs trust, the, the benefit is they will still qualify for means-tested public benefits. The government won't count that $100,000 litigation award or whatever else is put in there. So that's a, a benefit. If, if your child has that money or they already inherited from grandma and you have to get it into a first party, then, um, then you need that. The detriments are that first party special needs trusts, like I stated before, are very, very restrictive on regarding what they can pay for. And they can't pay for food and shelter if the child is already on SSI. They can't replace programs. So your child would have to go to that dentical dentist. They wouldn't be able to just, uh, the trustee wouldn't be able to just choose your own personal dentist who you really like and things like that. And then um, after the child uh, passes away, who's the primary beneficiary, um, then the state has, and federal government has a lien on the trust, and that's called payback provisions. So whatever they have provided to your child and um, SSI and Medi-Cal, they can lien the trust for. So usually it's enough. I mean, it's it can be a hundred grand if you know you know have any. Uh, hospital visits, you know how expensive medical care is and how, you know, how much that Medi-Cal can add up quickly. Uh, but but they lean it for every penny they've ever given to the child during their lifetime, not after the age of 18. And that usually wipes it all out. So we can compare that quickly to a third party special needs trust. So a third party special needs trust is set up for the child by anybody except um, your um, except the child, and it's with the money of anybody but your child. So uh, if your child has special needs, they cannot put their money in. No person acting as an agent or conservator or anything else can put their money in there, and um, and then it never has their money in in it. And so that it always um, it, it is a lot more wide open. First of all, compared to being restrictive. Um, the, the investments are just normal investments. You aren't as restricted as the investments in the first party. The distributions can be for anything that is legal and the, the, uh, the distributions can do be for in-kind support and maintenance. So that's a pretty complicated area where I, I address in the 19-page memorandum how to do in-kind support maintenance and not lose all of SSI. If you do it incorrectly, if the trustee paid for food and shelter, say for instance, the, the, the child could lose all their SSI. 
if you do it correctly, they only lose about $20 a month. Well, who, or I'm sorry, $200 a month. Who wouldn't want their child living in a, and way better, nicer place. I mean, some section eight housing is actually very nice, but you know, and you know, I don't know how you feed a teenager for less for $690 today, but, but anyway, that, you know, third party is wide open as far as that is concerned. And then payback provisions are not required in a third party special needs trust because it was never the child's money. Um, the child had no control over it and it's not under the child's name titled under the child's name. And also it's not under their taxpayer identification number. So the government can't put a lien on the trust when uh, your child passes away someday, all the money can go to the other siblings. You know, it could potentially come back to the parents if the grandparents left money in there and a third party special needs trust um, inherited directly from the grandparents rather than the child. Um, so, so the third party special needs trust is the best vehicle. Every person who is, um, practices in this area would agree with that statement. <laughs> and, and the best thing that you can do regarding quality of life for your child is avoid probate court for uh, settlement of your state. Uh, so you need a living trust. You need a will. If you have a, if you have a child who is under the age of 18, you really need a nomination of guardian agreement. And it's very inexpensive as far as just that document. But um, if you don't have that in place, the state is the default guardian. So the state can come in and seize your children, you know, and, and um, you, you know, the people who are surviving, or if you are just incapacitated, you know, the people that are caring for you can't do anything except go to court to be named uh, guardians, which is about a, you know, $5,000 process right now. <laughs> so, um, so living trust, set up a living trust. If you're a parent, set up a special needs, third party, special needs trust, guardian agreements, you all, you need your own powers of attorney and everything else to avoid conservatorship for yourself. Um, but, but you, there's two things you can't take for granted. You can't take for granted that you will survive your parents or all of them. And so if you're just thinking, well, it's not really an issue, which, you know, most people would think because I'm inheriting from my mom and dad, um, you know, my child with autism is not inheriting from them, but, um, but the problem is you could potentially not survive a child and then inheritance goes straight down. If you're, if your parents have trust, their own trust or not, then, then your child's inheriting either part of, or all of that, you know, that, that distribution that you would have inherited. Right. Man, such good information and so much like to try to keep in your own headspace as a parent. So I'm sure glad, you know. Parents, a... parents, make sure you take notes. <laughs> well, yeah. podcasts are nice because you can replay them. That's right. That's right. Definitely <laughs> a benefit. Um, looking at that, you know, as you're looking at family members and then on the outside, who can contribute to a, a special needs trust? That's a great question. So, um, so. Um, any person can contribute to a third party special needs trust, except the beneficiary, which is the child or adult who has special needs. Um, in a first party special needs trust, only that um, person with special needs can contribute to it because it's their own money, like I stated. Um, but but one thing is that, you know, um, 
you know, I create grandparents provisions for my um, for my clients because it really is comprehensive planning. It's just back to the grandparents. You know, honestly, the number one person who blows it for the kids, the parents can have everything set up is the grandparent. And and uh, they love that child. Um, they um, they want to provide for them. And especially in special needs, a, a lot of the um you know, grandchildren with special needs inherit even more than the other children in the family, but, but they leave them money. And then just generationally, they, they pass away, you know, about the time the child turns 18. And then if they haven't adjusted their documents to leave directly to that third party special needs trust, then you have uh, a child um, inheriting that money. You have to put it into a first party special needs trust. You can do that outside of court or inside of court. And then, um, and then you have, um, you know, a, a very restrictive situation as opposed to a grandparent who left, left their child money and, and, and wanted that to really uh, provide meaningful support rather than just, you know, pay attorney's fees and things like that, you know? Um, so, so it's comprehensive planning to, to make sure that the parents are just, you know, either amending their documents if they already have some or, or, you know, um, creating a new one with proper language. So in talking about grandparents, what types of gifting can they give? And they should have this, I should ask this first. So they should have this grandparent provision, first of all. And secondly, what types of giftings can they give? Like, can they give properties that will have income as rental income? Can they only give cash, et cetera? That's a really good question. So, um, so grandparents uh, or any person can can contribute any asset to a third party special needs trust. It can main it can hold and maintain title to uh, rental properties and other things like that, other assets like that. So that's not a problem at all. Um, if you, some people, um, I'll just touch on this topic briefly, but um, able act account is a whole other presentation, but, mm -hmm. but some parents will give a smaller gift through an able act account, but those accounts, um, they are restricted to total contributions to the able act account can only be whatever the gift tax exclusion is that year under internal revenue service rules. So, um, so if you can only give $15,000, I'm sorry, gift tax exclusion. So if you can only give $15,000 gift tax exclusion to another person uh, without incurring tax, um, that's how much total from all resources can be put into an ABLE Act account. So an ABLE Act account is not a vehicle for inheritance, generally speaking, um, from parents. <laughs> Probably that no way would anybody only be leaving you know, $15,000 or less. And then also the grandparents, um, you know, um, they can do that if, if you wanted to do that, but it would have to be um, not contradict with other, you know, monies that were being put in that year, you know, so that the total wasn't over 15,000. And then once the ABLE Act account reaches $120,000, it would start to do deduct, you know, um, they, the person would be disqualified basically, you know, from receiving public benefits. So, so there's a cap, but you know, there's only, only the yearly uh, gift tax exclusion amount that can be put in either way. Uh, but grandparents, yeah, they can leave any type of asset and, um, and they, they do need to have that uh, properly drafted. Most grandparents have never heard of a special needs trust because they, they weren't in existence when most of them set up their trust. <laughs> and, and as people age, uh, generally speaking, they get very suspicious of, of adjustments that need to be made, you know, in the final years. 
So start early on your parents. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. So just to clarify, the a third party special needs trust can earn money in and of itself and not count against SSI. Correct. And none of the assets and none of the income in this third party special needs trust count as the child's um, unless the trustee does something wrong and and um, inadvertently creates it a situation where it, it is counted as a first party by putting the child's money in there directly. Right. And then again, back to this grandparent provision, that would be within their own living trust. Right. Yes. Okay. And the, the, the provisions are the three things that you have to have, right. But, and that's what the software gets wrong, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, where attorneys can, you know, you have to be a licensed attorney to buy it, but they click on that button and, and those are wrong. The way, the way it's worded are, are all wrong. And the, to, to tell you the truth, it doesn't create a third party special needs trust like the parents would want. I don't know that the attorneys understand. I, I can't, I mean, I can't guarantee you that the attorney even understands the difference between first and third party special needs trust. But um, if they did, they would know that it doesn't create a valid third party special needs trust. It doesn't even create a valid first party special needs trust. So neither one are valid. The court would still make them completely mod modify the trust to add the correct first party special needs trust because of the other way that it's drafted the child's taking in name. Mm -hmm. so. That is so difficult for families. And, and we hope this podcast definitely goes out to many, many families so we can catch that. So as you're looking at this, now you have the special needs trust kind of established and you're wanting to say, okay, now how can we use this and, and what type of uh, expenses can be used without getting again into uh, trouble with SSI and other benefits? Well, that's great. And if you have uh, the parents have a properly drafted special needs trust, then we'll be uh, about three pages of what qualifies as special needs. So, and even if it's not specifically lifted, if it's listed in a third party special needs trust, if it's legal, uh, um, they can pay for it. Um, it just gets back to the issue of in-kind support and maintenance. If they're replacing a governmental pro uh, program, they have to do it correctly, mm -hmm. you know, or or they uh, the child could lose that that benefit and have to reapply and reapplying is a very lengthy and, um, you know, emotional and costly process to, to, to finally get it a resolution. And, you know, um, it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, you really will, um, spend at least two years resolving that if you're lucky to get a trial that, I mean, a hearing that quickly. Mm hmm Gosh, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for clarifying all of this today. And, and, you know, just the bullet points again, families look into third party special needs trusts, be mindful of when you're hiring your lawyer, um, what their experience is, are they using these computer programs, et cetera. So go back and listen to this and, and definitely be taking notes. You know, Elizabeth, one of the things that we like to end on is this question of, what is one thing that you'd like to share with our listeners to help encourage them and to bring hope for the road ahead? That I guess relative to, you know, having a child with special needs, I just, I just talked to a man and he said, you know, these are million dollar babies. So, and most parents would agree that. Yeah. So really where you can gain peace of mind in life, then that's worth your money. 
because there's a lot of different things that will take your money, but to setting up a plan for your child when you're either incapacitated or you've passed away is one of the most important things you could do. And one of the things, once you do it, that will give you the greatest peace of mind. Oh, thank you so much for coming today and talking with us on this subject. It is such a valuable subject for all of our families. Um, and we just can't thank you enough, Elizabeth. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really nice. And, I, and I'm sure that all your listeners are just the really wonderful people that I meet week in and week out. They're just, I hope they realize what great people they are, how impressive they are as parents and how much love I see in every single one of those families for that child. It's just, it's just, you know, it's humbling. Resources and contact information for today's podcast will be included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share us with others and be sure to follow us so you won't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment or rating and connect with us on social media or on our website at hopeonthehardroad.org.